start tonight with Zephaniah, and then I assume we'll have enough time, we'll move into Haggai after that. So um, I think all of you know me, right? I think I know all of you. You don't know me, Bruce? My name's Joe. <laughs> now you know. <laughs> um, is there any questions for me before we get started? Any questions that I can't answer? <laughs> all right, good. Did you start the recording? I think so. Numbers are moving? Numbers are moving. You're good. That's good news. Yep. So, all right, so like I said, we're going to start in Zephaniah. We won't read the whole thing, although they're short enough books, we probably could. But we probably won't read the whole thing just for sake of time. Um, so we'll start off with your little handout that we gave you. The purpose is Yahweh's control of all the nations will be proved in the near day of the Lord. <coughs> and the theme, very simply... <coughs> Repeat that purpose. Yeah. The purpose is Yahweh's control of all the nations will be proved in the near day of the Lord. Should I say it again? Yes, no. Yahweh's control of all the nations will be proved in the near day of the Lord. The theme is very simple. Judgment. Do I need to repeat that one? <laughs> I hope not. In case I do, it's judgment. And more judgment. So, so start off, we're going to look at a little bit of background information about Zephaniah. And his name means the Lord hides him. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Zephaniah. There's not much else given to us about it. Um, we don't really know why his name means that. Uh, there could be a clue in chapter 2, verse 3, where God commands the humble and righteous <coughs> to seek him and hope that they will be hidden on the, anger, on the day of the anger of the Lord. That's just my speculation, so don't, don't take that as gospel truth. Um, Zephaniah was the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. That makes him the only prophet to be born with royal blood. So uh, he was born, or he was on the scene about 635, 625 B.C. That's about when he did his work, which puts him in the reign of Josiah. Now, I think all of you remember King Josiah. He was the last good king of Judah before they went into exile. Okay. Um, we're going to have hopefully some people read some passages for us. If uh, somebody could turn to 2 Kings 22.2. We're going to find out a little bit about Josiah and what was going on in this time frame. Somebody have that yet? Gary. 22.2. One page away. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Okay. So like we said earlier, King Josiah was a good king. He initiated many reforms in Judah. He reinstated the Passover. He destroyed the idols, the Asherahs. 
Um, at first glance, you'd think, why is Zephaniah still prophesying judgment in the midst of this good king who's bringing all these reforms and making all this stuff and leading the country the way he should be? He did what King David did. He did a lot of the same things. He led the nation rightly. Um, as Gary said, he did not turn to the right or to the left, just like David did. So what was different from King David to King Josiah? Any thoughts? Why did God still pronounce judgment through Zephaniah on these people when Josiah was leading them the same way that David was leading them? Lori. This probably isn't what you're after, but was it because there had been just hundreds of years of evil, idolatrous living, and God knew that they were just going to go back to that after Josiah was gone anyway? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Have you all heard the phrase, heart transformation, not behavior modification? <laughs> Can anybody summarize that for us really quick? What does that mean to you when I say that? We want heart transformation, not behavior modification. Chuck? Behavior modification would be um, external appearances mm -hmm. as behavior, but uh, internal would be, um, the heart transformation would be, you know, we've been studying was condition of the heart dictates, um, you know, how your, your behavior. So that's the difference. Okay. So would you say we're looking for an internal change, not just an external change? Okay. So looking at what the people did after Josiah's death would lead us to believe this was not a heart transformation on the lives of these people. That even though Josiah led them correctly, he initiated good reforms, he tried to lead them in a godly way, the heart of the people was not with him. And after he died, we see they went right back into their old ways and right back into the same things that they were doing before. Thus, Zephaniah continued his prophecies of judgment and what God was going to do and bring about to them. So, so moving on from Josiah, we'll go to the outline. Um, are you all in Zephaniah now? Mm -hmm. Okay, so we mostly already covered verse 1, where it just tells us Zephaniah, who he is. He's the guy who wrote the book we're studying. Then we'll move on to verses 2 through 6, if I could get a volunteer to read that for us. Chuck. Okay, verses 2 to 6. Uh, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. <laughs> I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. And when I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and do also swear by Moloch, and those who turn back from following the Lord, and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Okay, thank you. So he jumps right into superlative major judgment, right off the bat, from the first things that he says. 
Um, he doesn't he doesn't waste any time convincing them of their sin or outlining doctrine. He doesn't beat around the bush. Just starts right in with judgment, and not just any judgment. Global final judgment. So why does he? Why do you think he starts off so harshly with them? Yes. Because they're, it says they're um, bowing down, swearing by the Lord, and also swearing by Moloch. Meaning they're they're picking from all of it. I'll just mm-hmm. so their worship is not um, not just to the Lord only. Mm-hmm. You know, so right off, he's saying, "You're not worshiping me, right?" Uh-huh. Any other thoughts? Well, he got their attention, probably. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very much to get their attention. As we'll see later in the chapter, uh, I think it's verse 12, their hearts had become so callous and indifferent to God and to all of his other prophets, prophesying all these judgments. You guys, I'm guessing most of you have been here for all these other books, and it's kind of the same thing week after week, isn't it? They sin, God sends a prophet, he pronounces judgment. Do they repent? No, they keep doing what they're doing. And it's just the same thing over and over. So every time the prophet comes, they just, eh, it's the same thing. It's not going to happen. So right out of the gate, as Lori says, he starts off with, hey, this is not just little judgment. This is the whole earth. This is the whole world. We'll be judged. Not just you guys. Not just one time. So that, that kind of reminded me of... Uh, you all know the emergency alert system, right? When it pops up, that really annoying <laughs> sound. <laughs> so I'm guessing the first thing you do is stop what you're doing, pay attention. Oh, what do they have to say to me now? What should I do? <laughs> right? That's what you all do when you hear the sound of warning. If you're like me, probably not. You turn it off. You blow it off. You turn, the, turn it down, change the channel. Kind of the same story, I'm guessing, for a lot of you. So that's what he's doing here, right off the Worked bat. Worked so far for me. You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he's getting their attention. He's doing whatever he can say, whatever it takes. Say, hey, you need to pay attention here. You need to listen to this, because this is coming. So is there a lesson for us in that? Of them becoming so callous and so indifferent to judgment to people's warning that we just keep going along our merry way. Yeah, I see two things, two lessons here. First of all, the holiness of God doesn't change. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's still, and you know, you look at his word, that's a comprehensive condemnation, like almost like the Noahic flood. Yes. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe out man and beast. You know, that's, yeah. that's a lot of stuff there. And, and at the same time, you see the hard hearts of man. We see it today. So man doesn't change and neither does God. And right now they're, they're not they're not together. You know, there's, there's a, there is a, an antipathy between man and God here. So. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts? Before we move on. And just along with what Gary said about how man doesn't change, it does seem that we can very easily drift into dullness, spiritual dullness, and mm-hmm. it's what makes the regular assembling together to hear the preached word uh, so important uh, because that's a confrontation with the, the living God and his word and we need to hear that but 
it, it's easy for us to become dull. Mm -hmm. We're a bunch of dull people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's probably also just related to the you know the crying of wolf, cry wolf, you know, mm -hmm. so many times that maybe that's the way they were feeling at that time. Mm -hmm. Gee, over the centuries we've been given all this bad news, and you no, know, so we're just going to ignore it this time too. Mm -hmm. Yep. Kind of like the the early warning, whatever that was, you know that. You were talking about the emergency broadcast. Emergency system. broadcast yes. thing, like Gary, you were ignoring it, right? <laughs> yeah. One of these days, <laughs> it'll be real. I don't. I don't. I don't I turn my down. Yeah. yeah, I don't turn down. Okay. So, Jeff and I knew the time had come and gone for recovery. He knew they weren't going to listen. So he parallels this judgment right out of the gate with the future day of the Lord. This whole book is a foreshadowing to the day of the Lord. And from listening to some of the recordings in the past, some of you guys have already mentioned that at least once or twice. This whole book is a foreshadowing of that. And he talks a lot about the day of the Lord, especially in Joel. I think Bruce did Joel, right? Yeah, he talks a lot about that in Joel. So... We'll move on to verses 12 through 13. If I could have another volunteer, or maybe two, if you want to split it up. Bruce. I'll do 12 and 13. Okay. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, their houses shall be laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink from the, drink the wine from them. Okay, thank you. So it's been almost 50 years <coughs> since Isaiah left the scene, about 688 B.C., and they're still in the land. They're still acting the same way they were before. Same judgments as before, and they're still going on. And they're starting to think... God's not really going to punish us. He's not really going to judge us. And if you look at it, you can see it in verse 12, when it says, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will do no good, nor will he do ill. They're starting to believe in their minds that God doesn't really care about their sin. He's not going to punish us for what we do. We've been going on this long, and he hasn't judged us. So why would he do it now? He must not care. He must be indifferent. So, after, uh, let's see, where was that? They're, they're starting to assume that he's not only indifferent to their sin, but, um, let's see, sorry. They, they believe God was indifferent to their sin, and they were indifferent their sin in other words if there's no God he doesn't care what I do because he's not real so what does it matter what I do so I can do whatever I want to do so they became indifferent to their sin to their deeds believing there is no God he's not going to punish me <coughs> I can do whatever I want to do do we see any of that today in our postmodern world <laughs> all the time mm -hmm. that's the anthem that's what 
That's the anthem. The anthem. Of the world. That's what they yes. say all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's another word for for uh, extreme tolerance, indifference to sin. <coughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So we'll move on to verses 14 through 18. If we could have another volunteer to read for us. Read. Uh, Mike. 14, okay. 14 through 18. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. The day of wrath is that day, the day of distress and anguish, the day of ruin and devastation, the day of darkness and gloom, the day of clouds and thick darkness, the day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty embattlements. I will bring bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. In 18? Yes. Uh, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them from the day of the wrath of the Lord. In, In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make all the inhabitants of the earth. Okay, thank you. I'm going to hand out three verses real quick. If you want to just raise your hands, and then I'll go back to where I was at. So if I have three people who want to read, or read verses, Lori, okay, if you take Malachi 4, 1 through 2, and then somebody else, Monica, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 4, and then uh, June, 2 Peter 3, 10. So, going back real quick, these are the key verses. This is the key passage in the book. Okay, this is where he outlines the great day of the Lord. Okay, this is the main thrust of the whole book. Like I said before, our, our main theme was judgment. And this is the judgment, the great day of the Lord that's outlined for us here and what's going to happen on that time. Um, there's, there's probably dozens of references to the day of the Lord in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The term day of the Lord is is mentioned 19 times in the Old Testament and four times in the New Testament. The day of the Lord refers to a specific final period of God's divine wrath. That didn't come from me. I stole that from someone else you all know. But, yeah. When we talk about the day of the Lord, this is what we're referring to. Not to say that there wasn't other judgments that referred to the day of the Lord. When it says the day of the Lord, in general, this is what we're talking about. The time at the end of this age when Christ comes back to earth physically and judges the nations. So if we could read a couple verses about that. We'll start with Lori. Malachi 4, 1 to 2, you said? Yes. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Okay. So what does that tell you about the day of the Lord? It's 
It's a great day for believers, and it's not a great day. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well said. Yes, very good. Yep. How about first, this is Monica, First Thessalonians 5, 2 through 4. For you know very well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should not surprise you like a thief. Okay, what does that tell us about the day of the Lord? Don't be surprised. It's going to come without warning. Mm -hmm. For everybody? Well, we should see the signs coming as believers. Mm -hmm. And I have known a man who for 45 years says, I firmly believe Christ is coming before I die. And he's peace. And he was serious about it then, and, and before he died, he was still serious about it. But you could see all things are moving in the direction, mm -hmm. and he saw it. So. He was ready. He, and he, he was ready. ready every minute. He, he was very ready, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, what about Second Peter 3.10? Is that June? But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Okay, does that tell you anything else about the day of the Lord? Is anything gonna pass away or destroyed? Heavens. Heavens, the earth, yeah. <coughs> so these all, all three of these describe the day of the Lord. And also this day of the Lord we see here in Zephaniah. In verse 18 he says, for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now it's chapter 1, verse 18, in case you're wondering where I'm at. So, in all this judgment that he's talking about in Zephaniah, this is more than just judgment for Judah, okay? Because the judgment for Judah did not destroy the whole earth, obviously. It didn't make a full and sudden end of them, secondly. If it had, there would be no remnant. There would be no one to come back to inherit all the blessings that God promised to Abraham and to Israel. So this is not the same judgment for Judah as it is describing here the day of the Lord in the end times, like we see Revelation 19.21, Zechariah 14. Only going want to read those because we might run out of time. So we'll move on. But this, is, this isn't just the judgment for Judah. It does include the whole earth. And he parallels them together. So, so we'll move on to chapter 2. If somebody would like to read verse 2 and 3 for us. Yes. Gather together, gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives and the day sweeps on like chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Okay, thank you. So to start off with, before he gets into more judgment, he pauses to take a minute to warn them, to implore a faithful remnant to seek the Lord and to humble themselves. And perhaps it says you may be hidden. There's also a reference that I believe is Isaiah 26, 20. 
but I don't think we have time to read that. Um, so he's he's imploring these this faithful remnant to, in the midst of all this judgment and all this oncoming wrath, to seek the Lord. To basically, I think maybe we should turn there. Let's go to Isaiah twenty. I believe it is. <coughs> Say I believe it's 2620. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. So he's telling them to cover themselves, to hide themselves, to remain faithful to the Lord. Okay? He's not saying, I will keep you from all suffering. I will protect you from anything, any harm that will happen to you. Okay? He is saying that on the great day of the Lord, when he comes to judge the nations that he will not come to judge them, like we read in some of the verses we talked about in Thessalonians and Peter and even Malachi, that it's a good day for us. It's not a bad day of destruction for everyone. Mm. So, but in the midst of all this fear and all this turmoil and judgment, we see the fear that they all had, and rightfully so. And... If we could take a short minute and take a little rabbit trail detour, um, hopefully not too long, because that's not the main thrust of this, but to look at ourselves in our own time frame, okay? And I hear many people saying how afraid they are because, like, that guy you were talking about, what he sees coming, these signs that he sees happening in his, his lifetime or shortly near, what lesson is there for us in that? Well, it's what Chuck shared with me for that, that particular gentleman said, you know, be ready. And, and you know, he was ready and, and he's a brother in Christ, that, that he's in heaven now. But the, the point is, he saw it coming, he was ready and he lived his life in such a way so that he was, he was certain he was doing God's will. Mm-hmm. He wants to, what did uh, Jonathan Edwards say? I want to do all things as though it's the last hour I have to live. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be ashamed of him. So, mm-hmm. uh, interesting thought. But uh, Yeah. Yeah. So let's read a couple more verses. We're reading a lot of verses. <coughs> and find out how, how should we respond in the face of this oncoming judgment to our nation, in the face of all these things that we look at and we're afraid of. And quite honestly, I am too. I see a lot of things happening in our nation that do frighten us. There's a lot of things coming for Christians, for, for myself with a special needs son. There's a lot of things coming that you hear floating around that make us worry. So let's look at a couple verses real fast, a couple more volunteers, to read 2 Peter, 7, 2 Peter 2, 7 through 10. Somebody want to read Daniel? What is it? 2 Peter 2, 7 through 10, and Hebrews 10, 35 through 39. Somebody else. Travis. Whenever you're ready, Daniel. All right, just a second. <coughs> <coughs> Second Peter 2. 7 through 10. 7 to 10? Yes. 
And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them, day after day he was tormented, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lusts of defiling passions, passion and despise authority. Thank you. Sounds like he's writing about our day, doesn't he? Yeah. Sounds very much like our day and time. And then Hebrews 10, who did I give them to? Travis? 35 through 39. 35 through 39. <laughs> Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Okay, thank you. So in the first one, we see how God knows how to rescue us from trials. He knows how to keep us safe and to preserve the wicked for the day of punishment at the same time. Now in this one, how are we called to respond to what we see in the world around us? In Hebrews. In Hebrews, yes. The, the three things I heard were with confidence, mm -hmm. endurance, and live by faith. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Perseverance. Perseverance? Yeah. Yep. Yep. My wife just whispered to me, be courageous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she doesn't like to speak up. <laughs> 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 Ironically, she said that. <laughs> Thank you, Melinda. <laughs> she wants to be courageous in front of the ungodly world, but I'm here among believers to clarify. <laughs> 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 no, but be courageous. I think that that is the, the, the stance of those who have faith and trust God. Mm -hmm. Yep. It says, my, yes, Bill. Maybe another point, too, that we can take, take out of it is because of the gospel, the gospel creates a stewardship relationship, right? At the very least, we're stewards. Okay. So I think it's good for Christians to feel the weight of concern but not the worry and paralyzing worry that would come from an unchristian worldview. So I think sometimes as, as Christians, when we speak in groups, we say, well, I might be worried about this, I might be worried about this, but I think if we take our thoughts captive, we're gonna say, you know what, I wanna feel the weight of the concern, I'm a steward, I'm managing the Lord's assets, including my reaction to things and how I think about things, how I teach about things, but the worry, I'm going to let the Lord have that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of where, we're, where we have to head in some of, the, some of this that we're reading right here, is that we want to, we want to make sure we feel the, the weight, but not the worry, so that we can live with confidence. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, I wasn't going to read it, but since you said that, let's go to 2 Timothy 1, 7 through 9. Somebody want to read that, or should I just read it for us? Go ahead. All right, well, then i got to find it. <laughs> Since you put me on the spot, Gary. Well, we had to find it. Second <clears throat> Timothy 1, 7 through 9. 
For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of this testimony about the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I think that goes along with what he's saying. We need to have a concern for what's going on around us, but we need to not let it control us through fear. We need to have a spirit of power, love, and self-control to be able to respond to this world the way that we are called to. So we will not shrink back, like it said in Hebrews. So all that being said, does that mean we will not have to suffer or endure hardships along the way? No. 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 Not at all. Not at all. Could God raise up a Babylon in our own time to punish our nation nation, just as he told Habakkuk? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very much so. That's right. But even with that, in light of that, we're still called to do what he's told us to do and to not shrink back. So we'll come back from the rabbit trail. Go back to Zephaniah, if you're not already there. I was until Gary told me to turn. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> so back to Zephaniah 2. And we'll start off, let's see, we're already in Zephaniah 2. So continuing on is more judgment. If you didn't guess, well, more judgment. So he talks of the judgment of Jerusalem and the judgment of the nations. Um, If we go down to chapter 3, verse (coughs) 7. Everybody there? Good. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the, more eager, all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. So God was hoping they would accept correction, return to him, and curve his judgment. But that's not what happens. They were all the more eager to make their deeds evil and to continue in their sin. So then we'll move on. It goes a little bit in verse 8 to talk about the day of the Lord again. And then starting in verse 9, the narrative changes a little bit. And he talks about, in your study Bibles, I think the heading is the conversion of the nations, which will bring us to an interpretive challenge, but we'll come to that in a little bit. Um, Could somebody read for us verse 13? Of Zephaniah 2. Gary? Zephaniah 2 or 3? Of Zephaniah 3, I'm sorry. Okay. Is that what I said? Yes. Zephaniah 3, 13. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So start in verse 9 to the end of the book. He talks about what's going to happen after the day of the Lord and what he's going to do for the conversion of the nations, as it says in the heading, even though that's kind of a misleading term in our way we use the word conversion, I think. And he talks about the people who are going to be there after the day of the Lord, like Gary read for us, those who do know injustice, those who are his dispersed ones that he has gathered in, those are the ones that will remain in the presence of God 
after this day of the Lord. So, and then moving on to verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never fear again. So this, again, is referring to after the day of judgment in the millennial kingdom, which I'm pretty sure you guys have talked about before because I've listened to some of your messages. So you all know about the millennial kingdom? Or do we need to go over that? No. You got it? Okay. This takes place after Christ comes back, after the great judgment, the day of the Lord. He sets up his millennial kingdom, and that's what he's referring to in the last section of this book. Okay? So we'll move into interpretive challenges, which there was really only one interpretive challenge in this one, even though reading some commentaries, I think I found a few more, but for what we're going to look at, there was only one. If you go to chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 9, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Okay? Some people are saying this would be a reversal of Babel. If you think back to Genesis, to the Tower of Babel, when God dispersed all the people, changed all their languages, so they couldn't talk to each other to confuse what they were doing, so they'd all scatter. They're saying this, at this time, God will change everybody's language to one language. That way we can all talk to each other, we can all interact with God, with Jesus, with each other, and then we'll all just get along great, I guess. But the, the issue is, no, I don't agree with that. I will tell you why. There could be one heavenly language. I wouldn't disagree with that. It is not one language that glorifies God. It is not multi-languages. We could all be multilingual in heaven. It is not having one language that glorifies God. He could do that if that was his intended purpose. And will we all understand each other? I think we will. But is that what it's talking about here? And I think, no, it isn't. To say that, I think, misses the point of the verse and trivializes what's meant for us here to learn. Um, When it talks about the pure speech, it's not referring to um, everybody talking in one language. I believe it is the, the transformation of us being outfitted as God's holy people. Um, when it, um, we're using pure as the adjective to describe the type of speech being used. Pure here defines and clarifies the type of speech we will be given so as to communicate with our God in the way he requires of us. Not in a new universal language, because we could speak in any language that glorifies God. It is not the language or a specific language that glorifies God. It's language from a pure heart that glorifies God. Okay? 
He could have us speak any language he wanted to, or he could have us all be multilingual. It really wouldn't matter. Okay, I think that misses the point to say he has to convert all of our speech into a pure holy speech in order to be able to worship or glorify him. We, people all over the world glorify God in whatever language they're given right now. Mm-hmm. We do not need a unified, perfected language to be able to glorify God. Mm-hmm. What we do need to be able to glorify God is purified hearts that speak pure speech, whatever language that speech happens to be. Okay? <coughs> so, so it's the hearts that are unified. It's the hearts, yeah. It's not the speech. If we think of Isaiah 6, 5, you'll have that in your minds, what happens in Isaiah 6, 5, with Isaiah and the tongue on the, the, tongue on the coal, the coal on the tongue. He says, woe to me. What, what does he say? I'm a man of unclean lips. Yes. God will purify our lips. Not so that our speech is a purified speech, but that we speak in a purified way to glorify God. Okay. And I also had another reference to Ezekiel, but I think we probably better move on if that clock is right. Is it really 6.50? Yeah, but you started five minutes yes. late, so you can go five minutes. Okay. So does anybody have any questions on Zephaniah before we move on? No? That's good. Okay. All right. Then we'll move on to Haggai. So all you got to do is flip your page. <laughs> Better than flipping something else. Hamburgers. <coughs> yes, sir. And somehow, I'm missing page one of my notes. Flapjacks. So you have to get through it quicker. What? If you don't have page notes to your page, you'll be able to get through it quicker. That's true. <laughs> That's true, but I don't want to let you out too early. I just found it, so good. There was a debate in the office today about how to pronounce that. Haggai? Yeah. You could say Haggai, or you could say Haggai. I didn't study that, so <laughs> you're on your own with that one. Okay. I have no idea. When I grew We're up... We're not speaking the same here, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think God will still be glorified whether you say Haggai or Haggai. Do you have a... This is pure speech. Yes. Do you have I'm a... get Haggai mad at me, that's all. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a different way to say it, Chuck? I don't know. No. Is that the only two? Not a bit. Just wasting time. Okay. I, was just, I was entertained listening to the debate. How's that? Oh, okay. All right, fair enough. We could take a vote, but it really doesn't matter, I guess. So, all right, we'll move on to Haggai. Flip your page. And we're going to flip the scene completely. Okay, this is totally different scenario, totally different scene here. Okay, this is the first of the post-exilic books. And it sounds like a big word, but all it means is the books that were written after the exile of Judah into Babylon. So that's all post-exilic means. So he was the first prophet to prophesy after the return of the exiles. Although Zechariah was right there with him, he was only you know, a couple months later, so we say Haggai was the first. Okay? This book is obviously named after him, Haggai. We believe he's the one who wrote it. We don't know a whole lot about him. Um, his name means Festal One. And again, we don't know why. It's possibly because he was born on a feast day. But... I couldn't prove that to you, so I'm not going to try. 
Haggai speaks for the Lord five times in this book. The date is 520. It all happened in the same year for Haggai. And all within a few months. So, very short book, short prophecies. Pretty simple. So. How many times did the Lord speak to him? Five. Uh-huh. Yep. They technically say it's four, but I just kind of made it one because he spoke and then he said something else and then he spoke again. So I made it five. But if you want to say technically, it's four. <coughs> it's four times that the Lord comes to Haggai and gives him a message to speak. So the purpose is the challenge to the leaders and the people to rebuild the temple. Should I say it again? The challenge to the leaders and the people to rebuild the temple. The theme is a call to construct a temple. (laughs) Very simple. Call to construct a temple. A call to construct the temple. So, one of the main themes that we'll see over and over in this book, even though we may not go over all of them, is, and I have it in your notes, I believe, the calls to consider. He, kills, he tells them to consider five times throughout the book, which in a short book like this kind of makes it a theme. He wants them to think about the things that he's saying, to consider why is this happening to us? What is the reason for this? Which again is equally applicable to us today. Why are we going through hard times? Why is this happening in our land? It's something that's equally valid that we need to consider nowadays as well as back then. So we'll start with a short review of background. Um, As I said before, this is the last uh, one of the last three remaining books of the Old Testament, the first post-exilic book. Um, as we all learned from, I think Mike, you did Edward, you did Ezra and Nehemiah, right? I wasn't there for any of these, but I did listen to you guys. So, um, starting back in 539, Cyrus, king of Persia, overthrew Babylon, and he issues a proclamation that anyone wishing to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the house of the Lord may do so. We believe that Haggai was in this first return of the exiles in 538. He was led by Zerubbabel, which is a fun word to say, Zerubbabel. (laughs) He was the appointed governor of the Jews when they went back by Cyrus, the king of Persia. And we have three deportations to Jerusalem to Babylon. We also have three returns from Babylon, then it wasn't Babylon, it was Persia, but there were three returns to Jerusalem over a 90-year span. So Haggai was the first, came back with Zerubbabel. The second was led by Ezra in 458 B.C., and the third was in 445 B.C. under Nehemiah. So we have three different returns. Political sovereignty, however, never returned. They were never their own political power that wasn't under the thumb of another nation in some way or another. From that point on till, was it 1948? 
947, something like that. So the whole other time in history, they always had somebody with their thumb on them, basically. So the big question for the day was, has the day of the Lord passed? They're thinking, okay, we've been punished by God. We've been sent into exile. We're back in Judea. We're back doing what we're supposed to do, living where we're supposed to live. We're going to rebuild the altar. We're going to rebuild the temple. Is the day of the Lord passed? Is it now time? And as we know, the answer is no, as they're going to soon find that out. But they don't have the advantage of we do looking back history. So um, these were the same people, same sins, doing the same things they did before. And as we'll see in the next two prophets, the day of the Lord was still future, was still coming. Even though Haggai does not specifically mention it, he does reference it towards the end of this book. So, so we'll start off 536, they begin to rebuild the temple. Great. After they laid the foundations of the temple, their surrounding enemies, mm -hmm. which if you want to go back to Ezra 4, you can read all this, which I really don't think we've got time for that. But going back to Ezra, they started to rebuild, and after they laid the foundations, a lot of the elderly folk and those who remembered the original Solomon's temple just wept like crazy, just threw a fit. And all the other people throw in fits of joy and happiness. Look what we've just done. What is the big difference here? Why are some weeping for joy and others weeping for tears of sadness? Lori. Because um, the older ones remember the way it was before. Mm -hmm. And they're sad that it's not doesn't have the same glory in name. Right. It's not the same. Yeah. It's not the same, yeah. Very good. That's it. So after that, their surrounding enemies, we'll call them Samaritans, came up from the north and wanted to help them build. And they said, no, we're not going to, no. You had no part with us. You do not worship the same God we do. You're not a part of us. So they began to discourage them and to bribe counselors to oppose them and to counter the efforts to build the temple. And eventually it all stopped and died out. For lack of interest, they began to think, like Lori said, this isn't the same thing. This isn't the same temple. This isn't the time to rebuild. This isn't what was going to happen. So they gave up. Um, some people say it's due to the edict that the king of Persia sent to them declaring building to stop. However, that was not until about 12 years later. So they had given up long before the edict to stop building. It wasn't because they were told to stop building. So um, I'm going to skip the next part because we're still moving along in time. And we already covered it. So, so this is where Haggai, and Haggai enters our story. And Zechariah was there with him. Although, we'll save that for, I think, Wes is doing that next week. So, starting off, Haggai, chapter 1. If somebody could read for us. Who wants to read? <coughs> volunteers to read? Oh. Lori? Okay. If you want to read chapter 1, let's see, verses 2 through 4. Okay. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses 
while this house lies in ruins? Thank you. So a couple things jumped out to me when I first read this, and it's how much are we exactly like them? We make so many excuses for not doing what God has called us to do. We say, oh, I need to save for retirement. I need to do this first. I need to raise my kids first. I need to take care of this first before I go and serve the Lord. How often do we fool ourselves into believing that if we prosper ourselves and take care of our own needs first, that we'll be in a better position to serve the Lord? All the time. So in what ways, keep in mind, I'll ask this question first. Where is the present temple of the Lord? Right now. In our hearts. That being said, in what ways do we live in paneled houses while God's temple lies in ruins? Keeping in mind where the temple is. Yeah, interesting thought. We don't place it as a priority to worship God in the temple. We place our own needs and our own wants and desires and anger and pride ahead of it. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts? Collectively, the local church is that representation of God's temple. Um, so the local church, we are the church of the living God, you know, Ephesians. Mm -hmm. So taking care of ourselves individually rather than looking after the affairs of building the church according to the Great Commission. Mm -hmm. So you're saying we're just as guilty as they are? Not nobody in this room. Nobody in this room. No, but we're pursuing that. We deal with the same struggles and challenges and temptations as they do. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we um, we're on the trajectory of trying to grow in that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, could somebody read for us Matthew six thirty three? And if I don't have any volunteers, I think I can quote it for Bruce. contradiction of what we just said earlier, taking care of our own needs first, then we'll be in a better position to serve God. This says just the opposite. Seek first the kingdom of God and he will take care of everything else for us. But as we can see from what they did, their hearts hadn't changed from before the exile. They're still the same people looking after their own needs first. So Let's move on to verses 5 through 11. And I'll read that for us. I'll ask for a volunteer myself. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld <coughs> its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So, starting in verse 5, we see the first of these, consider your ways, as we'll see several other ways of those. This also screams to us in our own time. Here in our postmodern world, where we think we have the science, we have everything figured out, we know why things happen, we know why the weather patterns change, we know why this happens, and we've completely dismissed God as the cause of all of that. Maybe not us personally, but in our postmodern world. So he's trying to get them to consider, think, why is all this stuff happening to you? Why do you not have rain? Why do you earn wages to put in a bag with holes? Which sounds hilarious. Why would anybody do that? Just put money in your pocket and see it go out. But these are the things they cannot seem to grasp. That they can't understand. That Haggai calls them to consider. Think about this. So, and since they don't seem to get it, in verse 11, he draws a straight line for them. This is why God has called for a drought on the land and on the hills. In case you missed it, this is the reason why right here, guys. Since they were, what was the word, dull? They were dull. Just like we can be today. So, so he tells them that. They say, oh, all right, we'll do that. So we'll move on to Joel, rebuilding the temple. Can I ask you a question? Yes. I, when I've read this in the past, I've always read consider your ways as a call to repentance. Mm -hmm. is, that a, is that a fair reading, do you think? Or, or how would you instruct me in that? I think it could be that too. I don't think it's just a call to repentance. I think there is definitely that in there. Um, why, why point out you know, what they're doing wrong and the reason if it's not, hey, stop doing what you're doing, start doing something else, which is repentance. Well, if we think about Ephesians 5.22 or Colossians 3.13, we would see that put off, change, put on kind of concept here. It looks like that's what he's calling for and can consider mm -hmm. this the, the, the act of repentance. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, anyway, that's just what struck me, but yeah. I appreciate your comment. Yeah, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I do, I do agree. There is a definite call to repentance. But I think in the call to repentance, it's why is this happening to you? Well, because you need to repent, because you have done this, because you obviously have not considered your ways and done what God has called you to do, and that is build the temple. So, all right. 
So we'll move on to rebuilding the temple, verses 12 through 15. Somebody want to read that for us? Or should we? Travis. <coughs> then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, uh, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of, the rem of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. <coughs> so amazingly, the people listened. If you measured prophets by their success in getting the people to do what they said, Haggai was probably the most successful prophet there was. Because the people did repent, they listened to what he said, and they did it. For a time. So, the Lord said, I am with you. I have favor with you. And they listened. They went and did what, they, what he told them to do. But shortly thereafter, we'll see the same old problems happen again that we discussed earlier when we get into chapter 2. So, let's see. I'll just read some of that for you, since nobody's volunteering. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. <coughs> Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, and all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. So, God knows what happened 16 years earlier, which is when they started to build the temple, when all these older people, I'm using it politely, all these olders who saw the original temple, like Lori mentioned, saw the glory and were just crushed because they saw this isn't Solomon's temple. It's not going to be the same. It doesn't have the splendor. It doesn't have the glory of Solomon's temple. And as we know, it never had the Shekinah glory that Solomon's temple had. So God says, who is left who saw this house in its former glory? And he calls those people. As you remember, as it was, and that now, it's basically nothing. It doesn't look anything like it did before. And he's saying, don't worry about it. I am what brings, not me, God is what brings the temple glory. Okay, not, not the jewels, not the gold, not the structure, not the stature, not the height, not the width. God is what brings his temple glory. Okay? So he reminds them of all this, that it's not in their earthly things that bring it glory. God is the one 
who will bring it glory, okay? So when we think about that, what gives worth or value to what we have? What was the question? What gives worth or value to what we have? Is it what we do? Is it our money? Is it the time we put into it? Is it the splendor? The height of our blessing is from God himself. So when we're in right relationship with him and we honor and worship him, exalt and glorify him through our efforts and endeavors here on earth, that pleases God. And that gives us a satisfaction that cannot be equal. Okay. So what gives, what gives worth to all that? Is it what we do? God. God, yeah. God is what gives everything worth. How close what we do matches his will. How close what we say that again. The thing that gives worth to what we do mm-hmm. is how close what we do matches his will for what we should have done. In our fallen state, we can never totally match it, but mm-hmm. it's the fact that we're trying to match his will in our life or for whatever, whatever that task is, do everything unto the Lord. So that gives it worth. Okay. You kind of joked earlier about Haggai being maybe the most successful prophet because people repented, but, and I know that was a joke, but what, what makes a prophet successful or not successful is was he faithful to speaking what God told him to speak? Mm. And no matter what the outcome is, was he faithful? Did he do what God told him to do? And that same measure of faithfulness is what is the, is the standard of judgment for all of our lives as well. Yeah. As God marks our faithfulness. Yeah. It's his to do with, with our lives, our faithfulness, what he wants to do or not want to do. Um, but that's, that's where the, his valuation of what's worth, um, worth a lot or not, is based on are we faithful to him? Mm-hmm. Will we remain faithful? Along those lines, I think it's significant that, that Haggai reminded them of their covenant again. And you see that through the prophets. Those are remind you that I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt, by the way. In case you forgot, you know, this is that uh, renewing, not, not a formal renewing, but a reminding of God's presence with the nation of Israel for, for a lot longer than they even have a perspective right now. And he wants to kind of, maybe, maybe God through Haggai wants to get their perspective to broaden out a little bit and see God working through history and there he's still there and I love the the two-word command it usually fear not comes with fourth because or whatever but it's just fear not period mm-hmm. that's that really struck me yeah okay so moving on then we'll go into verse six through nine somebody want to read that really quickly Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, 
I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Okay. And then he fast forwards and alludes to after the day of the Lord, and to the day of the Lord, really, and the millennial temple described for us in Ezekiel. Okay. And he says, once more a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and see a dry land, so that all the treasures and all the treasures, that the treasures of all nations shall come in, which is one of our interpretive challenges, which we may not get to. But anyway, he's saying, um, he is, this is what is going to happen. I will bring it glory. Okay, it's not what you guys do in yourselves. It's not your gold. It's not your splendor. It's not your honor. It's not your glory. It's my own. And that he will fill this house and bring it glory. And not only that, the latter glory will be greater than the former glory. So, um, let's see. So he's telling them if they do what he commands, then he will bring the house glory. That's not their charge to bring glory to his house. He will take care of that because we can't do it anyway. <coughs> So we'll move on to verses 10 and probably through 18 for now. This is a section called religious questions. Um, this is another word from the Lord that Haggai brings up and another call to consider once more. So as he continues on and like Bill said with his considers, is this a call to repent? Well, this one, it absolutely is, undeniably is, a call to repent. So if somebody wants to read verse 11 through 14. Nick, slide your hand first. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become clean, unclean? And the priest answered, it will become unclean. Then Haggai said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Okay. So as the work is progressing, God decides it's time to address their sin to call them to consider once more. So he gives them two practical demonstrations in the form of questions to ask to the priests. So we notice that Haggai, Haggai doesn't just come out and say, this is what you're doing, this is what you're saying. He gives them questions to help them to consider. So those of you who have taught something before, you know that if you can get the students to take part in the teaching of their own lesson, generally they learn it better than if they just stand up there and wah, 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 like on Charlie Brown. So that's what he's doing here. He's asking the priests whose job it is and charge it is to teach the people the laws and to keep charge of them, keep track of them, and to teach the people what those laws are and how they're supposed to respond and obey to them. So, first example, we have the holy meat, which is carried in the fold or the whatever of, I'm not sure why you would put, 
I'm guessing you'd wrap it before you put it in your pocket. <laughs> Seems a little. I'm thinking pizza. This is just a mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm curious. But, but for the sake of this example, okay, the holy meat which is unable to transfer cleanliness to or holiness to anything beyond what it touches. Okay. In the same way, all their religious deeds, their sacrifices, all the good they were doing is essentially null and void. That it does nothing to gain a right standing with God or in their hopes to affect a better crop, to affect the wine, the stew, the oil, or any kind of food. Okay? Or the forgiveness of their sins, for that matter. All their sacrifices were unable to sanctify all their works and their labor, labors in regard to building the temple or in regard to their food, their crops, their oil, and everything else they did. So, and then the second example is about uncleanliness transferring to something else. So, as we saw from the first example, with all their deeds, everything that they were trying to do to be good, their sacrifices, they <coughs> were brought from an impure heart. And an impure heart cannot be clean before the Lord, just in the way that if we have sin in our lives that breaks down our fellowship with God and we are unacceptable in our acts that we do. So I wrote down a quote from Matthew Henry he says, when we are employed in any good work, we should be jealous over ourselves, lest we render it unclean by our corruptions and mismanagements. So if we are doing a good work, think of all your good works in the, I know. Think of all the good works that you do for God. Okay. If you are sinning in your heart in some way, even your offerings to God are impure. Okay. We cannot have an outward show of religion when inwardly we are sinful and wicked. Okay. Our acts of religion are worthless to God when our heart is deceitful and corrupt. Okay. Um, if we have really quick, I wanted to read Jeremiah eleven fifteen. Does somebody want to read that for us? I think we're almost out of time, but... <coughs> Do I have a volunteer? Leah. Say 11.15. 11.15, really loudly. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you laugh? Okay. What right has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Can you then exult? Did everybody hear that? Yes. Over here, over here. Okay, good. So, as Jeremiah is saying, how dare we come to God and try to commune with Him and offer our sacrifices and act like we have some part with Him when our hearts are sinful and impure and we're hiding sin in our hearts? Okay. Um, that kind of made me think of a few things that Josh said in his sermon Sunday. Um, I'll just kind of quote him a little. If, what you, if you obey only what you agree with, it shows you're not obeying God at all. So if we are doing 
what we believe to be good, but only the parts that we want to do, yet over here on the side, we're still living in sin, and we're still doing our own little thing over here, our own little pet sins or whatever it is, then we're not obeying over here at all. I hope that makes sense to everybody. Perfect. Okay, good. Um, also, one of the verses he used in his sermon, which I don't know if we have time to go there, was 1 Samuel 15, 22, where it says to obey is better than sacrifice. <coughs> God would have us obey the first time, rightly, wholly, completely, than to disobey and sacrifice and reobey, then disobey and sacrifice, and a pattern and on and on. To obey God the first time completely is what God desires from us, and that's what he wants from us. So this is the point he's trying to prove to them by demonstrating, if we read on a little bit, he will show them exactly how their sin has caused this circumstance. Okay? And that is verses 15 through 19. Let's see. I'll just read it real quick for us since we're almost out of time. Now then, consider... From this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month since the day that you since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid consider is the seed yet in the barn indeed the vine the fig tree the pomegranate and the olive tree have yielded nothing but from this day on I will bless you so all this time which was 16 years from the time that they stopped building the temple the first time around till now when they started building it again, he's saying, did you not notice? Consider, think about all those times you went and looked for a certain amount of grain, it wasn't there. Because specifically, I struck you, I caused this because of the sin of you disobeying me. And now, from this day on, he will bless them if they obey. So, all right, so then we'll go into the last section, which is the reign of God in your notes, I believe. Mm -hmm. And this is the final word from the Lord. It happened on the same day as <coughs> the word of the Lord before that. So, and it is verses 20 through 23. I don't know if we have time to read it. Um, he came and said, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. Again, we have another reference coming to the day of the Lord and what he's going to do. Okay? And we'll skip on ahead. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. Okay? So on that day, which we already said, the day when Christ comes down on the day of the Lord to make 
his kingdom. He says he will overthrow kingdoms and chariots. This is the day he will reestablish the Davidic line of David. Okay. Was, this is also another interpretive challenge um, that took me a while, actually. But this is what I found. This is what I believe. In Jeremiah 22, 24 through 30, y'all remember the term Jeconiah. Mm -hmm. And if you remember, I don't know how far back this was, but Travis actually <coughs> talked about this in one of his sermons with Jeconiah's curse. You guys remember that? And how, should we go to Jeremiah real fast? Do we have time? Maybe. Somebody can get there really fast. Read Jeremiah 22, 24 through 30 for us. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you in a, into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. How far? 27? To 30. To 30. But to the land to which they will long to return, there they shall not return. Is this man, Kaniah, <clears throat> a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know? O oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. <clears throat> okay, so some people say this is the reversal of Jeconiah's curse. Okay, I personally don't really think that it is, um, because it's, you realize when it says Kaniah, it's saying that is Jeconiah. That's Jeconiah. Okay, it's the same person. So, and it says in there that no one from his, none of his offspring will ever sit on the throne of David. Okay, that is still the case. If you look at the lineage of Christ in Matthew and in Luke, if you look at the one in Luke, is Mary's lineage, I believe. And then also, if you look at the one in Matthew, it should be um, Joseph's. Okay? So God is reinstating, through Zerubbabel, the royal divinic line of David, the right of the Davidic throne to rule the throne in Jerusalem. He is not, however, saying that he is reversing the curse of Jeconiah to where one of his offspring will be allowed to sit on that throne. And we see that in Christ because he was not descendant from Jeconiah. If you trace the lines back, Christ was descendant from Nathan, not from Solomon. Okay? So this is not a reversal saying Jeconiah's offspring can now be the king cannot can now sit on David's throne. Okay, this is God reestablishing the Davidic line in Israel, saying that an offspring of David will sit on the throne. However, it will not be an offspring of Jeconiah, and we see that fulfilled in Christ in a way that is just 
amazing that only God could bring about, really. So, um, let's see. It's like we're out of time, so maybe I should stop. Does everybody, does everybody get that? Yeah. Do you understand that? Or do I need to go into that? That's from Jeremiah. 22, um, it's several verses. I think it's 24 through 30. I remember it? Yes, 22, verse 24 through 30. Okay. So, he's saying at when this happens and the day of the Lord, he will set Zerubbabel as a signet ring. In other words, he will reestablish that Davidic line through Zerubbabel when he comes back to set up his throne on earth. Okay? And that Jesus has the, the royal legal right to that throne through the bloodline of Mary and through the royal line of Joseph. And that Christ is the only one who can do that. And here he's saying to Zerubbabel, I'm reinstating this line. I am not, however, sending Jeconiah's offspring back to the throne. So, is that clear? Mm -hmm. Okay. I don't think we have any time for other interpretive challenges. Sorry. I took too long. Let's pray, and then you can go get kids if you need to. I need to go get kids. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time you've given us to come and study your word, to learn more about you, and to learn how it applies to our lives today, Lord. Um, we, we stand in awe at how applicable your word is to us today, as very much so, as very much as it was to them back then, Lord. Uh, I pray that we would learn the lessons that you have taught to them, and that we would... Um, not need to learn them the hard ways like they seem to do over and over again, but that we would um, obey the first time and that you delight in mercy and not sacrifice. Lord, I pray that we would obey fully and completely the first time and not um, hide sin in our hearts, Father. Uh, I pray that we would remember these things and that you would use us for your honor and glory um, in our lives as we walk through these days. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.